Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Satish, Satish Shekhar, and he is a researcher and expert in a murder case in the UK. It happened in Cardiff, Wales, and it's referenced often as the imprisonment of the Cardiff Five or the Cardiff Three. It was the murder of Lynette White, and it was really just a, a remarkable, long-running case there, a murder case that involved uh, just so many elements to it that uh, went, went really wrong. So I'm really glad and delighted that Satish is here to tell us more about the case. He has a website, fittedin.org, F-I-T-T-E-D-I-N.org, with a lot of information about the case, so if people want to reference that as well. Uh, Satish, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, maybe what we can do is just start talking a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this particular case sure it started when i was sort of dealing with uh, the death penalty especially in the caribbean and the united states and uh, with the issue of innocence of uh, some of these people and people in britain sort of saying you do know there are people in your own country that uh, need help and uh, are innocent too don't you <clears throat> so i started looking and uh, I saw, because I, I knew certain people, they, there was an article, a small article in a thing called the Institute of Race Relations, Race and Class. <clears throat> and it mentioned that there had been this murder, that um, it was a horrible, vicious, evil murder, that uh, the evidence was, uh, but the evidence against the three people who had been convicted looked absurd and that's actually been kind to it because i one of them had an alibi that he was working on a ship eight miles away and this had double figures in terms of people supporting this alibi another one the sole corroboration was what you would call a squealer we we call them grasses or prison informers however you want to address it and uh, this guy the informer had um previous for uh, trying to frame a police officer and uh, that one sort of collapsed then you had the main evidence was a <coughs> was the confession of one of the men and it simply beggared belief if you were to look at what this guy said and then try and apply it to the forensic science it just cannot be done it's absolute nonsense to put it mildly and you looked at this and you sort of, uh, I was looking at this thinking, this can't be right. They cannot have you know, done it as badly as it. I wasn't somebody who thought they never get things wrong or they never could do some uh, a very, very, very bad job. But I never thought it was going to be as bad as this. And when, when were you starting to take a look at this case? Because she was murdered in 1988, February 15th, 1988 in Cardiff, Wales. February 14th. Okay, but, it was um <clears throat> i started looking at it in february 1991 by this time the um three cardiff uh, men uh, yusuf abdullah tony paris and stephen miller had been wrongfully convicted <clears throat> what was also very very interesting about this was that there was so much scientific evidence or what most people would call forensic uh, evidence in that flat 
and none of it tied any of these men to that crime. And this was in circumstances where you just could not make sense of this. And that, what, what was that specific evidence? Was that the blood that was on the wall? Did it match any no, of the... Blood. There was um, there was footprints, there was semen, there was saliva, there was, you know, fingerprints, there was the... It was, the works was there. Gotcha, everything. It was one of these where if you look at how much there was there, it beggared belief that anybody could remotely consider it possible that people could have committed this crime without leaving any trace of themselves in that flat, but equally without interfering with any of the other forensic science evidence in in the flat. It simply wasn't possible on any logical sort of view of it. And they couldn't come up with a motive either, right? No motive? Sorry? There was no motive for the three convicted. Or the motives they came up with would... I mean, they... The main motive, one was, well, he didn't like her. Another one was uh, that he was the boyfriend, or they would say pimp, of the uh, uh, unfortunate young lady. But that actually has another problem with it, because if that was the case, why would he kill the goose that was laying the golden egg for him? So the whole thing just doesn't add up. These people didn't really know each other, apart from... In Cardiff, everybody knows everybody, but they don't hang around in the same circles. So uh, so they weren't running around together. These were not people who would have done something like this together, even committed any crime together. It just doesn't add up. <clears throat> but the key thing with this is the forensic science. It is like, if you were asking, can you eliminate the possibility that they had achieved the seemingly impossible? No, you cannot. But common sense has to take over at some point in time. And when you look at all the evidence, it's just not possible. Right. And there was also like an Eve, what you call in the UK, an E-fit that identified a white man. And all of these five people that you called the Cardiff Five, they were all either African or mixed race, correct? They were not white. Let's put it like that. Okay. Uh, there were there were a mixture. I mean, you had some who were dark, very dark skinned black. You had others who were sort of mixed race, but not white. And uh, that was basically the five of them. They were all in that. You could say some were light skinned, but they were not white. And do you think that their racial characteristics were um, one of the reasons why they were rounded up or why they were blamed? Well, let me put it this way. If you had a case where a young woman was uh, horribly murdered and the prime suspect was a black paedophile and that paedophile could be linked to the victim, could be linked to the uh, sort of scene of the crime or not even not so much the scene of the crime, but could be linked to the victim and could be linked to other witnesses. And then 10 months later, they arrest 10 white people for, for that. Do you think that could happen? No, I mean, I think in a very, uh, very unlikely situation that would happen, but uh, I don't think that would happen in the U.S., no. Change black for white, and that's what happened in this case. Right, so I do think that could happen. That could happen in the U.S. Mm. I don't think but it's, that, I don't believe that, that objectively, point, yeah. It is, is it, I would say this case was 
institutionally racist. It okay. should have been the standard bearer as uh, an, uh, for institutional racism in miscarriage of justice work. I mean, are there others? Yes, definitely there are. There are several cases where you, you'd have to say the criminal justice system is institutionally racist to have done that. But this case was more than simply about racism. This was essentially a case of we can do anything we like and we're going to. Right. And we go away with it for quite do, a long time. Do you know, Where, just sorry to sorry. interrupt, but do you know if the racial component of the Cardiff Police Force was largely white? Would you say? Yes, it was. Oh, okay. I mean, it's it's a case of like, you know, did they go out and say, I'm going to go and frame the, the first black person I can find? No, they didn't. They actually looked at this. They investigated it. They followed the evidence. But at some point in time, they reached a decision where they just thought, we're going to have somebody for it. Gotcha. And the people they went to have for it were their insurance policy. It was like you know, one of the big problems with um, cases in general is this so-called sixth sense. There isn't such a thing. It is simply a case of saying, on the evidence of um, you know, what I've had previously of what, or investigations previously, I think I know the type of person who would have committed this crime. I think I know who did commit this crime. If you start investigating like that, then you are going to fulfill your own sort of self-fulfilling prophecy or something. Yeah. yeah. But if you actually look at this and say, when I start this investigation, I have no idea who's committed this crime. I think you know, it will be the type of crime committed by a certain type of person. Should I look at people who've committed this type of crime or who built up to this type of crime? Of course you should. But that doesn't mean you're going to find the right person. And in this case, it's very, very interesting because it actually defies all conventional logic. If you had done an, an offender profile, well, there actually were. I mean, there were quite a few people who did offender profiles of this crime over a long period of time. Some of them claim that they got it right and that they were closer, uh, very close to it. I mean, one of them basically claimed they got it right because he said that it was likely to have been committed by a punter. Well, you know, quite frankly, that is the type of insight you would expect from a child, not somebody who was basically going to claim that this was something that was invest of an investigative help. Gotcha. Can, you, can you define punter for the U.S. audience? Punter is like a client. Client, gotcha. Like a client uh, of a I don't know what you, prostitute. It, basically, it is a person who was using a sex worker, gotcha. a prostitute. But I don't like using the word prostitute. Yeah, we use John here we, as the anonymous John. Okay. The US term. But I mean, just to go back, she was working as a prostitute and she was like stabbed 69 times. She had her throat cut mm. all the way down. Yeah. yeah, so really bad, a very gruesome uh, murder. It's more than just a gruesome murder. What is also very important in this is where the majority of the wounds were because there were like 50 offensive wounds half of them were to her breast or that area oh, wow. now that's sexually motivated most people would concede immediately this is a sexually motivated homicide that means you would be looking for a particular type of person sex offenders obviously 
you look right through uh, on those type of things. But what is interesting with this is you couldn't solve this case if you had the best detectives the world has ever known throughout history. If you put all of them together, if you gave them unlimited resources to investigate it in 1988, it would have made not a bit of difference. You would not have been able to solve this. Interesting. So, we, so you feel like the police found these these five? Uh, they were kind of semi dodgy too. Uh, characters, right? They, I wouldn't call. Oh them yeah, them. they wouldn't deny they were dodgy okay. characters. Okay. Gotcha. You know, they they had criminal records, but I mean, you know, there's a thing of like saying people sort of saying like they were no angels. They weren't, but they never claimed to be either. Gotcha. And this is the problem. It's easy to defend the rights of people who are angels. It's easy to defend the rights of people who are very, very sort of law-abiding and honest and decent type of people. That's easy. The problem is where you have to defend the rights of people who are not angels. Right. And so they were convicted in, what, 1990? You said there were five. There were two that did not obtain convictions, but there were five originally. And then um, Mm -hmm. the case kind of uh, proceeded from there in 1990. They were, something happened in 1992, right? Wasn't it the conviction? Let me just explain it a little bit. Basically what happens is you have this horrific and evil murder For 10 months, the police are investigating particular lines of inquiry. Eventually, they settle on five defendants. And the case against these five defendants makes no sense. It should have been all or nothing. Either all five of them did it or none of them did it. There was never any credible evidence suggesting three did and two didn't, except Miller's confession. Stephen Miller is the boyfriend who had a low IQ at the time and was highly suggestible. That means he was more likely than not to agree with what the police were telling him if you put him under pressure. He was put under intense pressure and he made a confession which is spectacularly ludicrous. I mentioned earlier that this was a sexually motivated homicide. And part of the reason I mentioned that is if you actually look at Miller's confession... The key part of it is full of Tony Paris stabbing Lynette in the belly. Well, there's a big problem with this. One, the major stab wounds were not in the belly. And two, there weren't that many in the belly anyway. Now, if Miller was involved in this crime, he's going to know that. And his confession should, if it was voluntarily given and accurate and honest, as the police claim time, then he should have made he should have known about all of this. This should not have been such a ridiculous error as this. What makes it even worse is nobody challenged this in court. I see. So they didn't have effective assistance of counsel. No, um, it's it's kind of difficult because like <clears throat> there were aspects of the defense which were done properly and well, and the co-accused did have good defense. Problem was Miller. He didn't. In the interviews, he should have had a great deal more protection from his solicitor. In the original interviews, he didn't get it. It was later, these interviews were effectively slammed. Well, not even effectively, they were slammed 
by the highest judge in the land, the Lord Chief Justice, during the appeal. He basically said he never wanted to hear a tape like that ever again in his court. Now, that is as about as strong an, a condemnation of the interviewing methods as you could possibly get. And in the end, it did lead to changes in the way that um, interviews were conducted. Interesting. What is amazing with this is that it was actually tape recorded. They knew that, that it was being recorded when they were bullying him in the way that they did. They just thought, this is totally acceptable. This is how we get to the truth. But they didn't get to the truth. They got to what they wanted to hear. Right, didn't he like 300 times he said he didn't do it, and then finally he said, okay, uh, these yeah. guys did it, and that was all they wanted, and they were done. Not exactly, okay. but very similar. Yes, okay. there were 303 denials. <clears throat> they then were trying to get him to give the detail that uh, they wanted. The way they actually got him to agree was by saying, and he had rejected this earlier, was that he could have been so blocked up on cocaine and ganja that he was there but and committing this murder, but he didn't remember it. Once he says that's possible, they then start demanding the details that they've just accepted he didn't know. And that's what leads to this confession. That's why it's so ludicrous, because the information they are getting from him is either what they've already fed him or something he's invented to try to keep them happy. Right. And when he tries to invent something, he doesn't know what really happened, so it comes out ludicrous. What should have happened is this should, what he said in his confession, should have been checked against indisputable scientific evidence, such as the pathology I mentioned previously. If you had done this and done it properly, you would have to have come to the conclusion, this is simply nonsense. This guy does not really know what happened. And you then have to look at the, the way they knew that there was blood in that flat there was masses of blood. There was the victim's blood all over the place. But they also knew that there were, amongst all of this blood, there were a few spots of blood which had been shed by the real murderer. And it didn't match any of these five men. And this is where you get a problem. Because once you've arrested them, once the DNA is saying it isn't them, you've got a big problem. How do you explain this now? Well, the way they explained it was by saying it could have been Lynette's blood. And technically, it could have been in terms of the knowledge you had at that time. But that raises another problem. If it was Lynette's blood and it's unsafe to uh, eliminate the Cardiff Five, then it's unsafe to eliminate anybody. And that includes their prime suspect. The Cardiff Five are the only people in this whole case whose DNA eliminations are ignored. And this was the problem with it. It was simply a case where they didn't let the evidence lead them where it should have led them. You, I mean, a lot of people blame South Wales Police totally and uh, completely for this miscarriage of justice. I don't. And part of the reason I don't blame them totally is because they should have been stopped. 
the Crown Prosecution Service should have looked at this case. They had a duty to ensure that the evidence was reliable and that they were supposed to anticipate the defence. If they had done their job properly, as they should have done in 1988 and 1989, this case should never have gone to trial. Right, and it and was it, it was a long trial too. It was like a, one of the longest trials in British history, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, there were two as well. The, okay. the first judge died at the summing up stage. So they had to go through the whole thing all over again. The problem with this is the whole criminal justice system failed miserably. I mean, you have a system where police are encouraged to try to get confessions, try to get convictions. That is seen as the goal. It shouldn't be. Policing, the goal of policing should be to prevent crime, not to actually detect it. Obviously, you will have to detect it if crime happens. But the real success of a criminal justice system isn't how many people it's locking up. It's how many it's not, because people are not committing the crimes in the first place. That is a truly successful criminal justice system. What we had is the whole of the criminal justice system performing absolutely miserably and hopelessly in the one case. You will see elements of what happened in this case in several other cases. The thing that is unusual and rare about it is that it all combined in the one case. It's very, very rare that a case is as badly incompetent, is being nice in terms of describing what happened here. It beggars belief that nobody stood up, looked at this and said, this is so bad a job that if somebody had put this forward for a, as a screenplay in a Hollywood film or some TV program, it would have been rejected as absolutely incapable of belief. And But you were one of the people who did speak up, right? Weren't you kind of involved in the appeals process uh, after they were convicted? Yeah, I was um, investigating and trying to find evidence, uh, and I did. Uh, but no, there, were, there was much more evidence that others found. The, the new defense lawyers in particular, Miller's defense lawyers, found a great deal, and they demolished Miller's confession, which was absolutely necessary. There was other evidence which never came out in the Court of Appeal, and that's a pity, because if it had come out, a large part of the, the rest of this whole process wouldn't have happened. Where I'm sort of saying, like, I don't hold the police accountable, or I do hold them accountable, I don't hold them responsible. The reason I don't is that for many, many, many years, they were told, you've got to investigate, you've got to secure convictions, the success rate, uh, you know, your success and your future prospects is on how many convictions you get. Confessions became a goal. Convictions became a goal. Right. They would get many, many uh, convictions. They would get pats on the back. They would get promotion. They would get greater pay. If you keep telling people this is the measure of success, don't be surprised when they actually go out and deliver this. And if they cut the corners to deliver it, they're doing that because they have had your blessing. And they've had your blessing for so long that... They have no idea that this isn't right and this, uh, you know, to, to actually stop it. And the role of the criminal justice system should have been, look, we do want you 
to solve these cases. But we want it solved accurately. Right. If you can't solve it accurately, if you cannot find the real perpetrator, well, we don't like it, but we're going to have to live with that. What we don't want is you going and bullying somebody into giving a confession. That confession is spectacularly wrong. And what it actually manages to do is protect the truly guilty. Right. And I mean, when, when did these guys get... When did they get let out of jail? Was it 92 or 93? So they, they were convicted in 1990, let out in 92. How did Al yeah. Sharpton get involved in this case? He was involved in the appeal process in uh, 1992. I believe he came and uh, attended a march in Cardiff and he publicly supported the Cardiff uh, Three at that time. Gotcha. And so then... Then they, I mean, these guys got let out. Did they, was there ever a civil settlement with uh, the city, I mean, the Cardiff, about their wrongful conviction? There wasn't Cardiff. It was, um, there was a, first they got compensation from the state, which was under uh, the old discretionary scheme, which has unfortunately been abolished in 2006. And later, something else happened, which enabled them to uh, take a civil action which was uh, settled out of court for uh, quite a large amount of money. I see. So they were properly remunerated. And then... Um, well, no, they weren't. They weren't. Okay. They were remunerated. It was a large amount of money. However, you can never properly remunerate somebody for, for this because uh, it isn't simply a case of the two years or the four years that they spent in prison. When they were released, they were released to a prison without bars. And the reason I say that is you still had this whispering campaign. You still had people who believed they were guilty in spite of the ludicrous evidence uh, in that particular case. Even what is outrageous about this is what happened afterwards, because I wasn't prepared to let this go. So I wanted to find the real perpetrator. And this is why. You asked earlier, why did I get involved? This is one of the reasons I got involved. I got involved in this case because when I looked at it, I was confident not only were these people innocent, not only was it going to be possible to prove it in terms of an appeal, but you could actually find the real murderer. And if you did, that is the clearest indication of innocence you could possibly get. Right. And I always thought it was going to be something to do with DNA. I didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. I didn't know when it would happen, but I was pretty confident this is where it was going to happen. And that is subsequently what did happen. As I was sort of investigating, sometimes on my own, but not always, I had some important allies in this particular fight, one of whom was the mother of the deceased, Lynette White, i.e. Peggy Pesticio. She adopted my findings and we went to the police twice to get this case reopened. The second time, they did a, a very, very good job. And it's actually an injustice to tar the second investigation with the uh, incompetent and outrageous practices of the first. The second investigation did a fantastic job. They followed the evidence they, went, they investigated it thoroughly, even when they got a setback of not having the murderer's DNA on the DNA database, which left people gobsmacked. 
everybody thought, you know, whoever did this was somebody who had built up to this. Uh, and as I was sort of saying previously about the uh, offender profiling, the standard wisdom in the offender profiling is <coughs> this is not a first offence. Right. This is not something that somebody immediately goes to uh, as a crime. They will build up to it. In this particular case, that didn't happen. The person who actually committed this crime, if he did commit any others, had they had been very, very minor and never resulted in criminal conviction, let alone in uh, any kind of punishment. This is before the murder of Lynette White. So he's gone straight to this. Then the even stranger thing happens, and that is, having done this horrible, evil murder, he stops. He doesn't go around with a, with a uh, bloodlust killing other people. He doesn't attack other people apart from one offence four, nearly four years later with a uh, half a brick where he attacks a work colleague, but a totally different type of attack. After that, which was in 1992, nothing until he is caught in 2003. This is my point about you couldn't predict this. None of the offender profilers came anywhere near telling the investigators that this is who you're looking for. Really? Somebody so the, done... the, the profilers were saying it was a serial killer, prior offender, somebody who did psychosexual murders in the past. Would that be well, correct? Not, not exactly. They didn't say serial killer as such. What they said is the conventional wisdom of this is more or less what was repeated originally in 1988 and subsequently that you know you would be looking for somebody who's done this you know, type of thing before if not at this level that certainly that there, there were there would be seriously violent crimes building up to this that's the conventional wisdom wow. it was completely wrong wrong and the guy that they found jeffrey before at all right i mean they they're starting to here in the the states these familial um, DNA test searching or just uh, investigate. All these cold cases are being solved now. We had the well, the East Bay rapist here. We that. had all the stuff. Jeffrey Gafour was the guy's mm -hmm. name who was finally convicted of the killing. Yeah, and that's exactly how he was ca caught. It was by familial DNA. Right. And he was he native to that area? Was he from Cardiff? He was from South Wales. He, he lived in Cardiff. He'd moved to uh, a uh, the outskirts of Cardiff by the time they actually caught up with him. It's pretty remarkable. So he saw all of the the fanfare, the hysteria, the mob behavior, and all mm -hmm. of these people wrongfully convicted, and just kept uh, kept his cool for that long till two thousand three. Yeah, he would have kept his mouth shut indefinitely. Definitely. There's no evidence that he was ever going to come forward and uh, take responsibility for this. So once he got convicted, I mean, he pled guilty, right? So he just he's uh, in jail. He for... pleaded guilty, but you have to bear in mind why. Like when he was actually caught, he then goes and tries to um, commit suicide, oh. and that's the closest he ever came to uh, a proper admission before his trial. He said, for the record. I did kill Lynette White. I sincerely hope to die. 
But when he was actually being interviewed by the police, he did no what's called no comment interviews. He put the police to task to prove it and the prosecution to task to prove it. And they did. And the way that they actually proved it was the fantastic advances in forensic science and the understanding of it, the integration of the use of forensic science with crime scene investigation. You didn't have both. You weren't going to solve this. One of the big mistakes people make is they think it's DNA first, DNA second, DNA third, DNA fourth, everything else fifth. Right. Well, that in- ignores an important point. How do you know where to look for the DNA? Well, the reason, or not the reason, the, the way you know where to look for the DNA is the other techniques, the other crime scene to investigative techniques, the forensic pathology, blood distribution patterns, all these type of things. And the way you, you have to understand the way blood is distributed as well. If you understand all of this, you can work out where to look for perpetrators' uh, blood and d- DNA in crimes like this. This gotcha. is why it was solvable. Gotcha. So once Gafur was uh, put in prison, then an independent police complaint commission uh, was started in 2004. And that, that the other part of this whole saga started after that of how did we prosecute and convict the wrong people? It actually started almost immediately after the wrong, uh, the conviction of Gafur. It actually started in 2003. The IPCC, which uh, no longer exists, and quite frankly, good riddance to it, supervised the investigation at the request of South Wales Police. They went and said that the police should view this as an opportunity to restore public confidence in themselves. That isn't what a supervising, investigating body should be doing. They should be saying, under no circumstances whatsoever will South Wales Police have anything to do with this investigation. And that is in the interest of South Wales Police as well. Let's imagine for a moment they investigate and nothing was done wrong. And they actually found evidence showing the police did nothing wrong. Who's going to believe that if it comes from them? Or they investigate and they bring it to a trial and it doesn't result in convictions. Who's going to get the blame for it? Well, that is what actually happened. And the people who got the vast majority of the blame for this is South Wales Police, and they shouldn't have. They Were they uh, at least partially responsible? Absolutely, they were. Were they completely responsible? No, they weren't. The prosecution were responsible for the tactics in that trial. And what is amazing about it is that the police officer's defence would and should have been completely out of place in the worst penny dreadful fiction. Their claim was that, first of all, the Cardiff Five and Geoffrey Gafford knew each other and committed this crime together. Well, that didn't work. There was no evidence they ever knew each other. There was no evidence they had ever been together. <clears throat> okay, if they didn't commit it together, Gafford 
had made previous claims to his lawyers, which should have been protected by legal privilege. And in the end, a coach and horses were driven through the, the law on uh, the legal privilege. And it emerged that he had given a contradictory account where he said he could only remember com uh, stabbing Lynette 10 or 12 times. Well, everybody knew it was far more than 12. So that led the uh, police officers who were charged to come up with their defense of saying, well, if Kafour only committed 12 of these stab wounds, somebody else committed the rest. That means we weren't wrong in the first place. It's the nasty Cardiff Five. But it doesn't work because then you have this situation of Gafour is supposed to have gone to the flat, stabbed her 10 times or 12, left her alive. She doesn't raise the alarm. And then the Cardiff Five come along after and stab her repeatedly all over the, the place several times. And that is what subsequently kills her. There are huge, huge flaws in this. One, why isn't there any scientific evidence tying the Cardiff Five to this crime when they're the ones who are supposed to have uh, done the, the worst of the violence? And why is there plenty of forensic science evidence tying Gafour to the crime when he's supposed to have done virtually nothing? It beggars belief that they were allowed to get away with such an outrageous defence. And they did it under the full protection of legal privilege themselves, which meant that the Cardiff Five had no legal representation, no ability to challenge this outrageous, and I'm going to say flat-out lie, because there's no way that you can actually believe this as a credible explanation. It defies any kind of rational thinking right. to believe that this happened. Cardiff Five should have the right to sue for defamation. But because this defamation happened within a court of law, it's under legal privilege. And it's oh. telling that none of these people who claim this, what I'm going to say, complete and utter nonsense, has the courage to say this outside of the protection of a court where they can be held accountable for defamation. Right, and then what, what's this, another terrifying aspect of it is what other cases other than the Carta Five had these police framed people, right? I mean, he did. some people, things are lost. Some people don't get the public outcry or other things. I mean, who knows? And I think a commentator once said that, like, if they ever were found guilty of wrongdoing it would under it would undermine the entire conviction convictions for decades in south wales it would have done yeah it would certainly have caused many many contested convictions to be investigated again this is part of the reason why some people believe the whole thing was uh, deliberately sabotaged to make sure that didn't happen right I mean, even, I think, yeah, Theresa May even commented on the failure of the investigation to, to convict any cops, right, or any police. Yeah, but what she did is order a QC to have a look at this again, only a limited aspect of the thing without looking at the original miscarriage of justice. And the whole aim was to prevent a proper public inquiry or what I prefer, 
a Truth and Justice Commission to establish what happened, how it happened, and how we can make sure it doesn't happen again, at least on a scale like this. Right. I mean, you can just, for me, it's like you look at all these other cases, it's a cover-up. I mean, it's a willful willful uh, position by the hires-up to curtail any real long-term conviction or uh, long-term investigation in this. They just want to sweep it under the rug and move forward, it seems like. Yeah, but I mean, I th- I'll go back to what I was saying previously. Part of the problem is <clears throat> that it only focuses on the police. Right. You have little bits about the uh, disclosure, but I always consider the disclosure issue, the way the trial collapsed, to be the biggest smokescreen there was in the whole thing. Was the disclosure inadequate? Yes, it certainly was. Was it the key and most important part of that trial? No, it wasn't. The most important part of that trial is the ignoring of clear, unequivocal evidence of innocence and the refusal to put forward clear witnesses of high credibility that this was one of the worst and most notorious miscarriages of justice that Britain has ever produced. Yeah. Here in the States, they would call that a Brady violation, not putting in contradictory evidence to the defense to let them know, you know, that there's something wrong. They would, it would, there would have been immediate ramifications for prosecution if they did something like what happened in this case, I think. Well, the irony of all of this is that those police officers got off in their trial on the basis of disclosure violations. It's ironic that the evidence about the original prime suspect in the Lynette White murder was never disclosed. Oh, it was found by lawyers who visited the incident room and noticed this. They never gave this information in the first place. How is it possible that insignificant documents which were copies, not even the originals, and had been considered for primary disclosure and not disclosed, but were due to be considered for secondary disclosure, collapse a trial of this importance, and nobody says, by the way, you should have disclosed these very people knew about the prime suspect. They knew that when they were saying describing the Cardiff Five as vicious, evil men and uh, as, and insisting that they had got the right people and they were responsible, they knew all about the prime suspect, Mr. X. They said nothing. Gotcha. And did Mr. X fit the description of Gafour? No. Okay, so they Mr. had... Mr. X was not Gafour. Right. But they had Mr. some... Mr. X other... was somebody else. But he was clearly the prime suspect in 1988. There is no doubt about this. Right. And I'm not saying Mr. X was the murderer or even that you know, he should have been put on trial. What I am saying is that the evidence against Mr. X in 1988 was infinitely better and stronger than it ever was against the Cardiff Five. What is astonishing in this case is that if you had reached a stage where you basically say, we've had enough of this, we cannot allow this crime to go unsolved, somebody is going for this, 
I cannot understand why it wasn't him. Right. Because if it had been, nobody was going to raise an eyebrow. Nobody was going to campaign for him. Nobody would care. Right, and he was like, I mean, supposedly Mr. X was a pedophile and had all of the... These no, things. not supposedly. He so, was. Oh, he was. Okay. Pedophile, prostitutes. He had the whole kind of top. We're, uh, Satish, we are at 45 minutes. We've covered, okay. pretty much covered the case. Is there anything else that we missed or anything you would like to add? Uh, there is a lot, but uh, because, you, you know, this has gone on for 30 years. There are so many different processes and layers to it that uh, it would take another case, uh, another sort of hour at least to describe it all. What I would suggest is why uh, that people could have a look at the books that I've written about this particular case and then if they have specific queries that they want to make then feel free to do so right and your books are titled fitted in the card of three and lynette white inquiry and also the card of five innocent beyond any doubt and those are at fittedin.org f-i-t-t-e-d-i-n.org yeah but there's also trials and tribulations Innocence Matters with a question mark. That describes the failed police corruption trial. And it's essentially saying it isn't just about this issue of disclosure uh, that led to the collapse of the trial. It's far, far more important from where I'm standing that you actually acknowledge innocence and that innocent people have rights. If you have a trial of police officers... What happens is what, and it's astonishing it happened in this case again, is that the defense almost always says, we didn't get it wrong. There's things you don't know. It's really those people who were allowed out on appeal, they're really guilty. They are the guilty people. We did nothing wrong. In this particular case, now, you know, obviously everybody is entitled to a defense. <coughs> and sometimes the defense is an unpalatable defense like this. Now, if you are going to accuse somebody of murder, you should have the right to defend yourself. You shouldn't simply be able to say, I'm innocent because so-and-so is guilty, but I'm never going to say this outside of the protection of a court. I'm simply going to trash that person's reputation because I know they don't have any legal rights to defend themselves. That's what happened here. When it's done by, uh, there have been a number of other cases where after where cases have been solved on the, on uh, cold case review but there's previously been a miscarriage of justice in that same case sometimes and they have a, a problem because they if you have a miscarriage of justice and you have and it's usually solved in some way by forensic science later then in the earlier stages where you have some other forensic science but not with the same level that it's reached you come up with absurd explanations and it's not just in the lynette white case which did have this it's several cases you notice this in a number of the vindication cases that they have somebody in mind and the forensic science simply doesn't fit 
So they find an explanation, however absurd, in order to ignore what the forensic science is really saying. The consequence of this is years later, when forensic science has caught up and you have the DNA testing systems, for example, that you have now, that are able to resolve these old cases, these people who are put on trial say, we're not the murderer, I didn't do it, I didn't commit this particular crime. The one you had all along, that's who did it. The forensic science, the explanation as to why they uh, were guilty in spite of uh, what it seemed, that's my defense. What they are doing without realizing it is handing real perpetrators a defense to crimes that they have actually committed. You see this in the Lynette White case twice. You see it over uh, the lack of forensic science implicating the uh, Cardiff Five or lack of credible forensic science. And then you have, when you do get the correct forensic science, you have to find an explanation and they come up with something completely absurd. Now, I can show you examples that where this has happened in the United States, it's happened in the Netherlands, and it's happened in other jurisdictions as well. And this is one of the key problems. We have to allow forensic science to say what it wants to say without fear nor favor. We have to allow it to be integrated into other crime scene investigative techniques, and we have to have policing that integrates it. And we're getting there, but we haven't got there fully yet. Gotcha. Okay, so Satish Shekhar, name is spelled S-A-T-I-S-H-S-E-K-A-R, and the website is fittedin.org. Thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome.